This is Great Dane Nation, presented by Vegas Insider. I'm your host, Morton Anderson. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, one of the most interesting men in St. Louis, Missouri, Tommy Freeze Pops. Tommy, how are we doing this week, buddy? Wow, that is a high honor here. A lot of interesting people here in the gateway to the West. Morton, thank you as always for having me. This week, one of the greatest pass rushers in the history of the game joined the show. Hall of Famer and Vikings legend, John Randall. Then I'll be joined by Kevin Rogers for our weekly check-in with the experts from Vegas Insider. And as always, we'll close things out with your weekly game winner. So we got a lot of great stuff planned for you guys. But Morton, before we get into all of that, we're talking pass rushers this week with John Randall. And one of the best pass rushers in the history of the NFL, J.J. Watt, Signing with the Cardinals, two years, 31 million, 23 million guaranteed. The guy's 31 years old. He turns 32 at the end of the month. Dealt with a ton of injuries, back, leg, all sorts of stuff. What are your thoughts on one of the best defensive players of his generation switching teams at an advanced age here? Well, first of all, let me say that I'm a fan of J.J. Watt and all the Watt brothers. They're they're fantastic ball players, and they have leadership skills across the board. And what he's meant to the Houston Texans has been phenomenal. Now, changing teams doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have more success. You're probably going to make more money. That certainly appears to be true in this case with J.J. Watt going to Arizona for quite a few shekels. And and I say good for him. That's what free agency, that's why we went on strike in 1987. That's why I walked and got thrown eggs at me and tomatoes in 1987. I'm dating myself. I've been through two strikes, 82 for pension benefits and 87 for free agency. So anyway, so J.J. Watt is reaping the benefit of those players that took a chance back in 87 to go on strike and to go to bat for future generations so they could move from team to team. So that that's what we're seeing. Will J.J. Watt be a better player with the Arizona team? Uh, I don't think so. He's He's had, like you said, a lot of injuries. He's an older guy. Now, he's still a very good player. I don't see him as an elite player anymore. I just don't. I can see him having one or two good years, but with the season, and they're also looking at more games, you know, in the in the NFL season, he's going to have a hard time staying healthy to play in every single game. So you might see him more in some spots, you know, coming in and in some sub packages. I don't know. He's still a starter. Don't get me wrong. He's definitely a starter. But I think we've seen the best of J.J. Watt, in my opinion. Some of his best years were in Houston. He was, I mean, defensive player of the year several times a perennial all-pro and pro bowler. So good for him that he's able to make a ton of money and and take advantage of the free agency system that the old guys created for him. (laughs) Look, you have been in not his position per se, but you've been a guy on the market before. So (laughs) curious how, you know, you kind of look at your situation when you were looking for a new team and his situation where it looked like he had all these suitors and maybe you weren't in as similar of a position as him in the past. (laughs) I I detect some some sarcasm, a little tongue in cheek here. Uh, And by your laugh, I could tell that this is not a serious question, brother. (laughs) Look, I mean, I I just just feel like I want to know. How you feel uh, your process went in 
relation to how his process went? Well, I was kind of forced out number one in 95 the day before training camp started. The New Orleans Saints said, oh, we got to cut your salary 40%. And that didn't sit well with me. So I, I jumped ship and I jumped to the, uh, to the dark side as far as, you know, if you ask the fans in New Orleans. I went straight, Jordan, sacrilege. I went straight to the dark side and to the Atlanta Falcons. And financially, it was a good move. On, you know, I was able to get a big signing bonus there. At least for me, I thought it was a big signing bonus. It's not J.J. Watt signing bonus, but times are different and we can't compare the two eras. It's just not possible. So for me, it was a matter of necessity and pride and a paycheck. And then in 2004, when I went to the Vikings, that was another situation where I was under contract for another two years with the Kansas City Chiefs. And they felt I had gotten older and declining. And so they brought in uh, Lawrence Tynes and they cut me the Friday before the regular season week started. And then Sunday, I was unemployed for 48 hours. And then I was with the Vikings Sunday night and started the regular season with the Vikings. Had a really good year with them. With the Giants, when I was, I was a free agent and the Falcons in 2000, clearly they went with Jason Elam. So I went to the Giants and I loved it. Won the job, straight tryout against uh, Brad D'Aloiso and won that job and played for the Giants one year. And the same when I came back to the Falcons in 06 and 07, I had to win that job against other guys half my age, the flat bellies that we've talked about in the past, you know. So I don't know, my my situation probably doesn't compare to J.J. Watt. He was ready for a change of venue and scenery and He's got it, and then it's up to him to deliver. I mean, they've certainly opened the purses, and he's being paid now, and uh, we'll see how he goes. I just think you know, it's a tough position, the defensive line, to play at a high level into your 30s, into your you know, mid-30s. He's, what, 32 now? Yeah, he'll be 32 at the end of March here. But someone mm-hmm. that was able to do that for a long time, John Randall, one of the all-time greats, a guy you and I have talked about wanting to have on this podcast since it began. So let's get to that conversation with John Randall. Let's go. Let's kick it. If these next 30 to 40 minutes don't get you fired up, nothing will. My guest today, John Randall, was and is the personification of energy and passion. He forged a path built from sheer determination and grit and paved his unique way to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He played with one speed, full gas, and he left us in awe with his creative ways to intimidate and affect the game. Regulators mound up, night riders, big dog in the house, rock and roll. It's Johnny time. Fasten your seatbelts, everyone. Here's Johnny. Hey, John, hey. welcome to Great Day Nation, man. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to be speaking to you and the good folks that are listening in and watching and viewing us. So I love, I love all the. I just got done watching like a 30-minute YouTube video. Oh, boy. Uh, when you were mic'd oh up. It was John Randall mic'd up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we played in the same era, so you're known for 
your energy. I mean, your offensive line coach said you were the ever, you know, the ever ready bunny before, mm-hmm. before he was invented. You were the original <laughs> bunny. And all your sayings and all, all your talk, and people say trash talk, I, I find it more like creative intimidation conversation. Yeah. What it does is it makes people that you play against wonder a little bit and yep. go, what we, what, 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 what did he just say? Yep. And I love right. that. And I think mm-hmm. that thing, that whole thing is born now. If you look at your history and we can start with the, with the sayings that you have, cause I love them. And <laughs> my, my favorite one is that regulators mount up, man. That's a good one. So can you talk to me a little bit about all, and, and I know you've talked about this ad nauseum, but I find it interesting that a guy who was perceived as an undersized guy coming out of uh, community college in D2, undrafted, ends up in Canton, Ohio. That is a fantastic journey, bro. That is a motivating, fantastic, fascinating story. So whether you want to start in Texas or we can start from now and work our way back. Oh, my story is, it's so much to tell because my path, it's so different from most guys in the, in the who get in football, who got in the hall. I mean, you, I was undersized because I was 240. And when I got to the Minnesota Vikings, they were trying to put me at a linebacker. And I'm like, no, I want to play defensive line. And when I was coming in the league, they just didn't think that was possible. You had to be a certain size, a certain height. And I just didn't have it. But it was just, I had to deal with a lot. I had to basically say that I weighed more than I actually weighed. And I had to show them that I was the type of person who could bounce back after that play, after the next play. And for me, I was very fortunate because that's what type of person I am. I'm a very high energy uh, guy who just wasn't going to be settled for nothing else. I was a guy who said, I was determined to show them that I could do whatever they needed for me to do. Just me thinking out loud, but I think I would I would have been a perfect guy for the military because I was a guy when you said to do this, I was gonna do it and I didn't have to tell anybody. I was get a plan together and I was gonna succeed with it. Do you so, think that growing up poor in Texas? that that mm-hmm. was an impetus, that that was like a motivation for you to overachieve and maybe you're not overachieving, but to work hard. You, you, you had to work outside of school at a very early age. Yeah. And uh, to make ends meet and to help the family, to pull your own weight at an early age. And that, that's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, I, I never, I, I didn't really see it at that time. That's where it was. I just saw it as, you know, growing up in the country, not having much. And if I wanted something, I had to go work for it. But yeah, it definitely was a factor into who I became because I grew up at an early age working in cotton fields, making $2 an hour, working with my mom. I've had every odd job that you could possibly imagine from being a janitor, buffing floors, laying tar on, on pavement, on rooftops building scaffolds, wrapping metal, wrapping aluminum, mowing lawn, doing fence rolls, you name it, I've probably done it. And so for me, that working hard was was part of me. I got up four or five o'clock in the morning, 
for jobs and didn't come home to five in the afternoon, six in the afternoon. My environment, that's what I saw from people working hard. If you want to achieve, you have to work hard. And for me, when I was playing, when I was in the NFL, one of the things that always stuck to my head was when I got that first paycheck and I looked at it and I'm like, so you're going to pay me to do that? Opposed to what I was already, what I was doing before this? Oh, this, oh, this, you want me to run all day? Oh, I can run all day. And it was just who I was. I think a lot of it too, I can remember growing up, one of the things that I just love being outdoors. I love being out in the trees or out in the forest doing stuff like that. So it all kind of came together. And luckily that football allowed me all those different things that I, uh, it was being outdoors, using my hands, getting dirty. And, uh, you know, it was just, to me, it was blue collar work. And maybe that work ethic that you had from having to work all those different jobs helped you in football. Was football a place of a safe haven for you, a place where you early on, or was it early on that you realized, man, I got a unique talent for whether it was rushing the quarterback or just being fast and athletic? At what point and who actually clarified that for you? I think when I got to my about my third year, uh, one of my coaches, he had us outside doing, we had these bags. and. I remember watching other guys do these bags and they had to like slap it and swim and rip and stuff. And they were kind of doing it as if it was just, they were more awkwardly doing it. And for me, I looked, when I was, when I was doing it, I didn't think about it, but afterwards the guys were like, you were doing this as if you were like a, like dancing. Because most guys were just running and I was jumping in the air, flying in the air and basically doing my moves up in the air and loving it. And uh, to me, they said I looked naturally or natural doing it. So John Turling, who's my, one of my first coaches who was talking about pass rushing or getting to the quarterback, he, he took me to the side and said, he basically said, you know, you're different. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I, I don't. He goes, no, you're, this game is built for you. You're a type of person can achieve in it, but you're going to have to push yourself and always believe that you can do better. And that's probably was one of my first times that someone had told me, here's something that I had never really heard somebody told me that. No one has ever told me, hey, you can excel at this. You can do this. You can do that. And my life was always like the odds were against me. And so he was one of the first guys that ever really told me that. You grow up in Texas, which they have tremendous D1 colleges. How upsetting or how how motivating, how frustrating was it that, you know, Texas, Texas A&M, TCU, Baylor, none of them come. You have a big brother who actually went to Baylor, is that right? And then he goes on and plays eight years in the NFL, Urban, and and has great success in Tampa Bay. And I think you actually had a workout with Tampa Bay where they said, no, no, you're not big enough. You're not strong enough. You're not fast enough. You don't weigh enough. Yeah. Right? Uh, So how much? How motivating was it? I mean, you're coming out, let's face it, Texas, man, is yeah. one of the biggest producers of, of football talent. You're forced to go to community college in D2. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was very disappointed because, you know, yeah, Texas football is, Texas football is like, it's like, it's like church on Sunday. You you, you got to go. You got to do it. So for me, I was very disappointed. Uh, but there was a coach named Keith Walters who was at the community college and I remember him coming to see me. I can remember like it was yesterday. He drove up in his red Chevy Blazer, four-door Blazer, 
and was telling me that that option is not one for me because I was a very raw football player. I, I didn't have technique. And my school small, was a small Division three school, and I can remember coaches telling us how to use the forearms. And when I got to college, the coaches was looking at me, and I'm like trying to hit. He goes, what are you doing? Using forearms. He goes, son, that stuff is like antique. We don't do that anymore. We use our hands. And for me, it's it just that was the perfect place for me was that community college where I learned to use my hand. And but disappointed I was coming out of a top athlete in Texas, but going to a small community college, then going to Texas and I, because uh, they told me at the community college I could stay for another semester and I could have transferred to Baylor, but uh, I didn't think I was ready for a Baylor. I, I still hadn't really say perfected my craft of being a, a better football player. So Texas and I was the next best step for me. And um, that's where the place where I learned to, uh, we started talking about playing defensive end, going against the quarterbacks. And my coach, God rest his soul, he was a very unusual coach. Most coaches, we know they wear uh, coaches' shorts, sweatpants or something. Sansa belt. Uh, yeah, yeah Sansa belt. Exactly. <laughs> oh, hey, pulled up to guy, the belly button. Yeah, you remember that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, do I remember that? Well, my coach, this coach, he came out, he had on a pair of Wrangler jeans, a plaid shirt, cowboy boots, and a cowboy hat. And he's standing out there with a with a football book. And he's got his little glasses on. He's going, okay, boys, they say y'all need to go up the field. We're all looking around like, what? Yeah, you got to go up the field. Kick your hat back. But his name was Coach Knippa. I remember, Coach Knippa. I'm like, and I remember asking one day my coach, you, you, you don't wear the coach's clothes. He goes, John, don't need that. He goes, God put us on this earth. We are all different. We don't need to do, I don't need to wear those to coach. You guys got to listen to this. Don't look at this. And, uh, but yeah. It's like but Mark he was, Phillips. Yes, exactly. So he was, he was a big country guy. So for me, he was, he was another coach that was different, but I can relate. I can understand him. And uh, he was just, just, I just learned a lot from him about, you know, just going around the corner. But, uh, Coming to Minnesota, those techniques that I learned in college transferred right into the pros because when I got here, I was undersized. I wasn't big enough. But the coach told me, he goes, you got something that they don't have. He goes, you know technique. He goes, it's going to take us a couple of years to teach those guys the hand techniques. And you learned it in college. And so I was ahead of those guys in that department, but I wasn't ahead of them and weight and size. So he said, we can put the weight on you, but we can't teach you that. So, dude, it all kind of, everything just kind of came together for me here in Minnesota. And uh, I would say it did. I wonder if that coach at your community college taught you to be authentic and to be real, be true to yourself, be yourself. Kind of yeah, sounds think- like he kind of took you down that road a little bit and said, hey, it doesn't matter your size, it matters the heart. I mean, that's 
you have an authentic heart and you have a deep desire to get things done, you can get it done. And you took that with you in your mental baggage, you know, in your luggage, and you went to Minnesota undrafted. And again, you're told, oh, too light, too small. And you you had a couple of tricks up your sleeve just to make weight. I mean, I read you put some chains chains in your pocket. Yeah. You know, we had those sweatpants back then. And so back then, my rookie year, they were – they would kind of give you a couple of days off for uh, like during mini camps. So my roommate and I went to a hardware store, just kind of two country boys kind of sitting around, nothing to do. Walked in the hardware store, looking around at these chains. I'm like, man. And the guy goes, y'all see those chains? I'm like, yeah. He goes, some chains weigh about 10 pounds. Please. And I just looked at the guy and I'm going, that's exactly what I need. I'm about 240. I need to get to 250. So I'm sitting there, and uh, my roommate now named William Kersky. So William and I bought these chains, bought a little lock, and tried it. Guy came over and cut it, and that's how I made the team. But the at the time, the organization, man, we I was playing behind four elite guys. I had Chris Dolman, Keith Millard, Henry Thomas, and Al Noga. So they told me, they go, you know what, you're, you're not going to touch the field but you're going to play special teams. So I was on kickoff, kickoff return, punt team, punt return. I was even on hands team. Oh, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. Hey, that hands team was, was a good time. Dude, that hands team was was It was, it was on. Yes. And hey. they told me, you know what the funny part was? They go, listen, the uh, special team coach named Tom Battle, he goes, listen, he kept going, listen. Your job is not to touch the football. Okay. What's my job? Your job. He goes, your job is to stop the guy from getting the football. You got me? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And so we worked, I know, every week, you know, with you guys, you know, the the kickers and stuff, working on it. And the first time we use it, it's against the Raiders. And I'm out there. I'm. It's like just breathing hard. You know, do, 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 do. I'm like, oh my God. And I'm looking down. All I see, I know what guy I got. I look down. There's this guy in his jersey, number 81, standing there. And it's Tim Brown. And I'm looking at him. Kicks that ball. It was like it was slow motion. And Tim Brown put his hands up like this, and I, that's like a piece of saw wood. I just, boom. <laughs> boom. And I jumped up my, I went, whoa, whoa. Oh, heads to you, man. The good old days when the rules didn't dictate, now you can't touch each other. Now you can't overload now you can't have a running start the onside kick is a six percent proposition now where in the back in the day closer to 50 50 proposition yeah it was it was and, so different I'm, I, the meetings was and we were in there like constantly watching film on a hand team, and i think i did it twice i did it. we posted had against against you guys atlanta and we didn't and uh but i got we playing you guys down in Atlanta, and who's this time? We got another guy down there. This was on punt team, 
got a guy down there from you guys, your team, he's bouncing around. He's doing his job. I'm like, I'm like, whatever, dude. I run down there. He catch the ball. He tried to do one of these moves. I went right through him. <laughs> Mr. Deion Sanders. Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah. Hey, he was, hey, you know, he was doing all this here. Oh, yeah. I'm like, dude, I got time for all that. I'm trying to make this team. see <laughs> all that. Hey, like, do you think, Johnny, that uh, so so humble beginnings everywhere you go? That's really what I'm getting here. Humble beginnings yeah. in, with the Vikings too. You you're put and and you are. Hey, I'm available, and they put you on special teams. They put you anywhere and everywhere, and you basically excel at it. And you also get now a little taste yeah. of what it's like to put a guy on his back. Mm-hmm. And that fuels your fire now. And as you alluded to a little bit ago, you're part of that line in the 90s with Dolman, Thomas, which I look at, okay, and I, I compare, and I would like your opinion on this. You know, you got the, the, the Vikings in the 70s, Steelers in the 70s. I'm talking about D-line now. Yeah, oh, yeah. 80s Eagles, 80s Bears, and the Bucks in the 2000s. Where did that line, because I thought you guys were underrated. I really did. Yeah. Where does that we rank? Were- you know what? Uh, I think we rank up in the top 10 because for Chris Dolman and Keith Millard, man, like Keith would have stayed healthy. Keith were destined to be the next Howie Long. And I got to know Keith so well. And, man, watching – when you were around these guys, I call them the all-star guys like Keith and, and Dolman, it's so unique to watch them – Get in a stance. Like Keith Millard just didn't, you know, you watch guys now, they just put their hand down. Keith Millard had such a unique, I call it like a Doc Holiday, Johnny Ringo style. Keith would roll his hand out to put it in a stance. He would be dramatic about it. Yeah. I mean, it was like, I'm your Huckleberry. Yeah. And he would roll it, man. Like his hands would come out and get down. And I was like, wow, man. He he would just have these weird things and just like he would get in the stands and when you're around pass rushers, the unique thing about it when you rush the quarterback, you don't breathe. You you hold your breath. And Keith would get out there and he was like say stuff. He had like this deep voice, man. Oh, can you feel that? You can feel that rush, Johnny. You can feel that. And it was just I learned so much from being around him, Dolman. And watching you guys rush the quarterback, their intensity. And I tell people, playing offense, playing defense, it's so different. Offensive guys are not as aggressive because offensive guys control the direction of the flow of, you know, in a play. But the defensive guys, you got to be, it's like you're trying to decide. I don't know if you're going to hear. React. And, yeah. yeah, reaction. And so being around those guys, man, I, I learned about, like, when you rush the quarterback, you can rush him from the right, but you also got to be just as good on your left side. And this unique thing, you know, about getting to the quarterback. Johnny, I, I watched a video of you just before we came on together, and you're teaching Williams in training camp. And yeah. You're teaching him the spin off of uh, get rid of hands. But if the guy grabs you, you were teaching him to spin, you know, and it, he was clearly better spinning one way than the other. He goes, do it from the other side. Yeah, do it from the other side. You got to do be able to do it from both sides. Yep, and and you're teaching you know, them that, and that that's what you were good at, man. Coaching guys to me, you know, 
I was lucky enough to be around some great guys and I learned some stuff and I wanted to be able to carry on that NFL tradition, which makes it such a great game. It's about teaching guys, you know, something that a game that is born from, from guys who gave so much from their blood, sweat and tears. And, you know, I wanted to pass it on to the next generation because it's almost like you with a car that you're selling, but you just don't want to sell it to anybody. You want to make sure whoever you hand it off to takes care of it, you know, like a home. And that's why I used to tell Tony, we were talking about password. I remember we were talking about that and I would tell him, I said, you got to be patient with this move. If you're going to do the spin move. You got to be patient. He, what do you mean? I said, you got to put that hand out there and wait for him to touch that hand. When he goes push that hand, that makes you push and come back the other way. Mm-hmm. And I learned that move from watching Bruce Smith and watching uh, Michael uh, Michael Jordan. I would see Jordan on the basketball court, him and Charles Barkley working on a spin move, posting it up and coming off of it. Because basketball to me was like, because I'm old school. So, you know, I like watching the, the Bruce Lee movies. So for me, pass rushing was getting in my garage and just working pass rush moves for about an hour or two trying to perfect, I call it perfect a craft that I wanted it to become second nature. Because if you can teach yourself, like it's like walking and walking better. Because one thing we learned from this coach during Tilling was, was he used to tell us, take it home. Take your, your, your technique and your skills, take it home with you, perfect it. He goes, the better you are at this, the better you will become and the better People will see you and you will make an a impact on his game. And he was, man, he was so special. He was strange, man, but. How he, was he, he was, strange? Well, one of the strange things that he would tell you is, he, well, he would, he would say, I'm going to call you one morning. I'm going to call you late at night. And I, he said, all I'm going to say is, if you don't know what to do, jet. Or I'm going to call you and tell you, hi-hat, what do you do? Pass. So he would call you at two o'clock in the morning. No. I had pass. If you don't know what to do, get out to quarterback. He goes, he, awesome. he would say That's something awesome, like, just like, hey, if uh if if you on the if you were late for the game and you got here and I sent you on the field and they had called a play and you lined up, what would you do? I said, go after the quarterback. There you go. There you go. And so he was he was so unique, man. Like he would tell us to come in the meeting room, you had to make a pass rush move. You can't just walk in the room. <laughs> That's great. I mean, he would be like, hey, ho, ho, what, what you doing? Just walking. No, no, no. You got to make a move. I want to see a move. Go back out and come it. back in. So we were oh, always man. doing that. And so it became like, then he would walk around. He would see you somewhere and he would put his hand in your chest. Like, so you have to make a move. And so, man, we were always about pass rushing. You know what he was trying to do as a coach? This is what I think he was trying to do besides having fun. But there was a method to that madness. It was to teach that that positive behavior needs to be dominant. You need to have two words, and I use it in my own with kicking, unconscious competence. You don't have to think about it. I can call you at 2 in the morning and say hi-hat, and you pass. You right away. Unconscious. That's what he wanted you to get to, man. He did it for so many years. I mean, he left Minnesota, he went to Detroit. He mm-hmm. even did it 
at New England. He did it at uh, the Colts with Dwight Freeney, Robert Mathis. That's John Turlink. And he was just, I mean, just, just such a guy to be sitting around telling you. He goes, you know what? I got up this morning. He goes, and I was thinking about rushing the quarterback. It's six in the morning. He goes, I, I got to think about rushing the quarterback. And he would tell us, he would say stuff like, one reason after he left Minnesota, people asked me why did I pick him to, to be uh, the induction in the Hall of Fame. Was, yeah. He told me, he said, if you guys listen to me, you'd be in the Hall of Fame. What? I'm like, whatever. He goes, listen to me. I'll put you in the Hall of Fame. That's powerful, so, John. Dude, that. That's and powerful, he, bro. Oh. Well, you know what? You rush better than anybody. 137 and a half sacks, second most by a defensive lineman in the history of the game. Okay? Alan yep. Page has the most, which, you know, that's good company, oh, yeah. brother. Oh, yeah. But here, here's when I delved into that stat, here's the impressive part. And this is coming from a kicker who doesn't know much, but he knows a little bit. You know a lot, dude. 54 of the sacks you had were in third downs, 53 on first down. Yeah. You didn't care for first down, second down, third down. Now, logic would say, well, a third down sack's easier than a first down sack because you're in a sub package. You have a mismatch maybe. But you got almost as many sacks on first down as you did on third down. So tell me your philosophy about the downs. And I already know the answer. You full speed no matter what. But yeah, what but allowed thing, you to get so many sacks on first down? Uh, well, one of the reasons was because we watched a lot of film. So to me, being in the National Football League, being a pass rusher, you watch film. But you also, I'd say you, you are stalking your opponent. You try to learn as much as you can about the team, about the players. I tried to figure out the guy was right-handed, left-handed. I tried to figure out so much information. So we started doing the the data on it, and we started to figure out that a lot of teams were passing on first down. And sometimes we look at some certain teams, and they were passing on second down. So the data, everything kind of all came in. I mean, and we watched so, for instance, we watched so much film, and I'll give you a good example. The Cincinnati Bengals one year, we played the Bengals. This Boomer Sison. And I think we got like nine sacks on Boomer Sison. And people were like, you know, how did you guys get to him? He's like, hey, you know what? We came out, we had a great day. We played hard, blah, blah, blah. We got a lot of points early in the game, so we had to pass the ball. But we watched so much film that we figured out to watch him that Boomer Sison. He had this little flaw that he did, which was when his helmet was double strapped, it was a pass. When it was a single strap, it was a run play. So we were looking at it. Dude, that's <laughs> like a poker player. Exactly. Like a poker player showing his, his hands. So, oh, yeah. Know, wow. Yeah. Um, Bernie Kozar. We played Bernie, and we saw from Bernie Kozar that before he snapped the ball, even though his hard count, he would move his leg before he snapped the ball. So every time he moves his leg, we knew the ball was coming out. Man, we watched so much film. That's why I say to guys today who play the game or, or even think about playing the game, or if you watch film, you become better players. I think that's one of the things about the New England Patriots, uh, Belichick, is watching film. You can discover so many things about your opponent from watching film. And for me, 
for instance, after the game, when everybody was sitting on the field talking, I always ran back in the locker room because I had notebooks about the players I just played against. So I was writing down the things he did well, the things he did bad, the things that I could take advantage of. And before you know it, man, you, you have a library, just a repertoire. Yeah, a library of all this information about players. And, you know, uh, going to the Pro Bowl, when most guys sitting around drinking, I was sitting at the Pro Bowl talking to a guy, like I sit with Reggie White and asking Reggie White uh, about his hump move. And Reggie's teaching me the hump move. Well, I'm sitting there with Larry Allen from the Cowboys who was bench pressing 692 pounds about being vulnerable or what did he think his hardest thing he had to look out for going against me. And there's just endless ways of finding that information to better yourself. Because I said to myself, even though I was a starter or I'd been to the Pro Bowl, I still saw myself as that kid who was trying to make it to the National Football League. So I wanted to push myself and to try to do whatever I could possibly do to make my team and myself a better organization and to get us to the next level. So every year I was reading magazines, reading stories about guys like, oh, my God, these sports journalists saying this about this guy. Oh, my God. He said he can't – he has a problem with the bull rush. So write that down. Oh, I love it. And I, I want to delve into a couple examples on also on, on how you did your research on guys and used it in games. Besides the physical part, there was also a mental and an emotional component to this. And I'll, I'll just revert back to this. I mean, success favors the exceptionally prepared. And you were. You were prepared. And what you did, which you took it to another level. You did research on guys and found a weakness maybe in their mental makeup. It could be yeah. a number of things. It could be a little oh, word, yeah. a trigger word, or the way you looked at a guy, or the way a little comment you made to him. Can you give me a couple examples of guys that became vulnerable because of you, because of your research? Okay. Well, um, yeah, um, we was playing against this guy who had played. He he was on the same. He was on the Vikings with me my first like three or four years, and he went to go play for Denver. So we don't want to I'm say his name. Against, we don't nah, I don't want to say his name, but I'm playing against him and. I can't get really like, I can't, like, I'm trying to talk to him. He doesn't want to talk. Like, he's he just but such a nice guy. So I can't get him to, like, get angry. So I think we had a TV timeout. And uh, so I went up to him and I'm like, hey, you know what, man? It's good to see you, blah, blah, blah. I've been a long time. How's the family doing? Good, good, good. And then all of a sudden, I'm, I just went, I can't believe you're doing that. I just can't believe you're doing this. This is wrong. And all of a sudden, uh, John Elway overhears us, walks up there, what's going on? I'm like, this is, this is not about you. Doesn't involve you. You stay out there. I said, he just needs to pay me back my money. I gave him $50,000. He just give me my money. <clears throat> I just give me my money. And looked at him and looked at John. Give me my 50000 John, I, I, said, I don't want your money. I want his money. He owes it. I want my money back. I was trying to do him a favor. And I just ah, I walked back to the huddle. And I walked back and I tell Henry Thomas, I said, I said, when I come back, I said, I just need you to kind of just try to restrain me, like calm me down. I'm, so I get back and I'm like, no, oh, he just didn't give me my money, Henry. They want my money. So next thing you know, he's he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, oh, see, you forgot. I said, small amount of money to you, but it's big money to me. I just want my money. And all of a sudden, we're just 
he was trying to talk to me, trying to calm me down. The offensive lineman was. Dude, by that time, I'm like full throttle. I'm, I'm hitting John Elway. <clears throat> I think I got like two sacks, and Henry got Henry Thomas got like two. And afterwards, the game was over. That's a he was coming. Hey, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going, why, boy? I'm like, he goes, I, I don't remember that money. I'm like, oh, there was no money. <laughs> I was just playing. I was just messing with you. Thanks for those two sacks. I gave him a hug. Oh. He cursed me. He cursed me. I'm so bad. Like, and I was like, are you like standing there in the after the game? You standing there and he's cursing you out. I'm like, uh huh. Yep. I go. I'm like this. Bad Johnny. Bad Johnny. Bad Johnny. No, good that. Johnny. Good Johnny. You're like so fun. <laughs> you made the game so fun, man. Uh, even on the other side, you know, and we had some battles and I want to touch on a couple. One is not going to be fun to talk about, but I'll get you on you. I oh, yeah. want to get you. Well, let, let me just. We'll take your only touchdown you ever had was against the New York football Giants when you were with the Seattle Seahawks. Yeah. And I'm playing in that game, John. Oh, you were? Yeah, I had two field goals. We beat you guys 27-24. But you had a touchdown in that game, and Michael Strahan had a touchdown in that game. Yeah. Do you remember the play? Yeah. yeah, I do. I do. I remember I remember my stat because I remember going, falling on the ball in the end zone, and we come to the sideline, and I'm like, boys, you know, like a country guy, boys, I just scored a touchdown in New York City. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that, that's where they're going. Everybody's like, what? I said, well, I just, this country boy just scored him a touchdown in New York City. <laughs> it's that's like that best. old commercial, that Picante, that Picante hot sauce, like New York <laughs> City. Just <laughs> touchdown New York City. Boy, I'm big. Look at me, boy. I love it. I love it, John. Hey, in 1998, man, you guys were rolling. You're 15 and one. Is that the greatest offensive team you you've ever been on? That Minnesota Vikings in '98. Yeah, yes, it was because the games, man. I mean, for Randy and Chris and Jake Reed and Cunningham. I mean, and Robert Smith. It was just like you know, we really for defense, we weren't. We weren't, I got, I hate to say it, but we weren't that good of a defense. But we were kind of young guys. But, man, having those weapons of Randy, because Randy, Randy was so unique. Randy was the guy, you know, where most time quarterback, you come on the defense side and tell us, hey, let's go, guys. But Randy was the guy who came down there and was telling us, let's go, let's do this. And I think, for our organization, we needed someone like Randy Moss, that type of caliber, the guy who just wasn't all about just scoring touchdown. He was about getting the team like fired up. And, you know, he was just, he was so unique. I mean, where they were telling everybody we had to wear suits on the plane and Randy get on there. And he was talking about he's too sore to put on a, a sport coat. And, you know, that was Randy. But oh, yeah. you know, watching watching him play, man, it it was like watching a video game because you're on the sideline and all of a sudden, you know, we just go sit down. You know, you just you're on the sideline sitting down. Next thing you know, you're like, hey man, Randy just Randy just scored. Like, what? And we just sit down. <laughs> we go back out there 
And and you were some point like, hey Randy, man, don't don't score too quick, man. Just just kind of <laughs> take your time. Give us oh. a chance to just rest over here. But you know that that was a high possible offense. But I think one of the things that kind of uh, hurt us was that we practiced like the old school way of practicing. You know, we had an indoor facility, but they would open the doors and we would have to go. Coach Green wanted us to go full pad and stuff. And I think a lot of it kind of wore guys down, but it was a, a high potent offense that was unbelievable to play against, but to be on it and to watch how Randy, man, and Chris yeah. and Jake, I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't double. You say, you know what? We're going to double Randy and Chris. And here comes Jake Reed. Cause Jake Reed was my roommate uh, before I think about his fifth year. We were roommates together. So we were always talking about when we got our chance to play and to see Jake, the, the way he excels, it was just unbelievable that you had weapons. Had that type of, yeah. You had so many weapons. And I've watched the game a few times. I'm sure you probably have not. The NFC Championship <laughs> yeah. Game. You think? Yeah. <laughs> it's just a wild guess, uh, Johnny. But there were several occasions where Moss is there and the ball is there. And if it's, a foot closer to Randy, it's a touchdown on a couple of occasions. And we felt very fortunate to be able to hang around, hang around, and the unusual occurrence of Gary, you know, obviously missing his only field goal of the year, very unusual. It was almost like standing on our sideline from our perspective. This is a perfect storm coming to us somehow because we were not expect. We were – you got to remember, we were 14-2. and, and two. Yeah, I remember, yeah. I mean, we, we were not slouchy. You know, we had just beat the Niners. Yeah. So, oh yeah, we, you know, yeah, we knew you got. We knew but we you were road dogs. Great. We were, we yeah. were road dogs. that had to come up, and when Gary missed that field goal, I go, you know, this is going to be a good game now, because <laughs> yeah, you guys were killing us. But you know what, though, I tell you what, though, we had so many of us were. I mean, the game that really it was against the the Titans. That game, I remember in the locker room, it was so flat and. I had to literally go around, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. And But it took me some time. That last regular season game, it took me some time to understand that because I was banged up against Arizona, but there were so many guys that were just needed a rest. And for what it was worth, that season went by quick, but, man, that was so many guys were banged up. I didn't know Robert Smith was banged up as bad. And were you on field goal? Were you on field goal rush on the final play in overtime? I don't think so. I don't. I don't think I was because I had sprained my knee, and the first play against you guys, they hit me in my knee again. But no, nah, I, I usually wasn't out there on field goal rush. What um, do you remember your emotion immediately after you saw the kick go through the uprights? And I'll leave it alone. Yeah, because that was uh, my highlight. Obviously, <laughs> I think for me, it was basically like a we didn't. We didn't believe that we were going to lose that game. And to see it happen, it was just like, you know, your girlfriend breaking up with you. You're just like, what? You, you're breaking up with me? No, you can't break up with me. And for us, that's the way, because I can remember feeling like... Numbness? God, yeah, just numbness. And just like, you just, yeah. not out of, not tired, but just like, no. We're supposed to go to the Super Bowl. We, we're supposed to be going to Miami. We're supposed to be hearing Will Smith's 
song about Miami. That's supposed to be our song. Even to today, every time I hear that song, I turn it off on the radio because I'm it like, reminds you of the good old days. The good day, when the dude, Falcons, so, when the Falcons, <laughs> when you guys would, when hey, the Dirty Birds, when the yeah, you had your day, hey, you had your Dirty Bird up there. I'm like, okay, they got the Dirty Bird, but hey, we don't matter. We we're going to Miami. We're gonna you get had banners bread. hanging. I remember you guys had bangers hanging, and they were coming down. They were ripping them off the, the uh, side. We and it was oh, we silent. Had, hey, that dome was silent, bro. In the locker room, they had the cameras and everything all set up in the locker room. They had the podium all set, <laughs> and it was. That's what I'm telling you. It was like, Oof. like it was. We Put, was putting the cart before the horse, there, dog. Oh, uh, and I remember driving home after the game, and on the side of the road, I kept. Noticing something on the side, like these little things on the side of the road. And I think I was with my driver or something. I go, hey, slow down. I looked over. People had thrown their Vikings banners off their cars. Oh, and no. I go, and that's when I, I realized, I told so many people, I go, so many guys, I said, I said, this really hurts. And I just don't mean us. This really hurts our fans. And I said, if we don't remember this for ourselves, remember how disappointing this was for our fans. And I said, that that for me will always, will always be in my mind of how we let our fans down. And I said, that's one of the main reasons we play this game. Or that's, that's one of the reasons in the game when I'm pushing myself, it was for the fans because these people paid their hard-earned money to watch us play yeah. and to take this away from them. Yeah. You know, you know yeah. just to come full circle on this, in 2004, I signed with the Minnesota Vikings, and the first game in the in the Metrodome, I get booed. I mean, not just a little bit. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. oh, I just entered the Lions' den. I'm wearing purple. Oh, yeah. I'm wearing purple, yeah. and they booed me. But It took a couple of field goals to get them calmed down, man. I mean, I've been living here a long time, and I tell people here, one thing about Minnesota, and even with the cold weather, I go, it's cold weather, but you got some warm heart people who can remember, which I have, this happens to me quite a bit, which is I'll be at a gas station or I'll be somewhere and someone goes, I met you 20 years ago at a gas station pumping gas. I'm like, 20, I'm like, dude, okay, I believe you. But they remember. And, you know, so it, it, it's that game, man. I yeah. know. It, well, let's, well, let's leave it alone. I got a couple yeah. of things to finish up. You, you've been so kind and taken way too much time, but I love it. I could sit here for another hour with you. And I want to say to you personally what, what a dear friend you are and Thank how much you've taught me coming into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, how you were so welcoming. And every time spent with you is, is a gift to me, brother. I, I hope you know that. I do. I appreciate it. I, I tell people all the time I said. We've I had some like, fun. You know, we've had some blasts. I tell people about this. I felt like I've been knowing Morton Anderson like my whole life. He's a guy that you just, I said, I can remember different moments in time I ran into you. I saw you, I go, dude, I said, I can just never get enough of Morton Anderson, man. I'm the same way, brother. I can never get enough Johnny Randall. And you know, we love life. We love life, brother. And you do. And we appreciate appreciate our history, too, because it hadn't been easy all the time, you know? No. No, you know what? But that's, that's life. I tell people that's life. In general, you're going to have some uptime, some uphills, some downhills. I go, but dude, that's what makes life life. And you, you sit around, I go, 
I never look at it as half empty. I look no. at it half full. You light I, up a room. When you walk into a room, everybody knows Johnny Randall's in the room. And that's a good thing. No, no, that not because you're loud or anything, just because the energy changes. And I mean that what, in a very positive way. You know what? You have an innate ability. You have a, a great ability to connect people. Your network is vast. I thought I had a big network until I met you. We would have a conversation and you'd go, oh, I got him right here. You show him in the phone. Oh, I know him. Oh, I did something oh, yeah. with him. Oh, I was, I was just like, at, at some point, I just threw my hands off. I was overwhelmed. I go, all right, Johnny. All right. All right, man. I, I don't know what to I say. Love, I love connecting people. To me, it's like, it's like being at a small town again. And, you know, getting to know your neighbors. And I'm always asking somebody, is there anything I can do for you? Or somehow I'm trying to find something to help you. And, like, one of my guys here, he's a former player. He played, played a couple years in the NFL. And he works with high school kids. And in the past 10 years, he's put over 100 kids into college by helping them get scholarships. Wow. So he came to me and he was like, you know what? I'm trying to build a, a new weight room. and But with COVID, I can't get people to, to reach out and try to help me out. And he goes, do you know anybody possibly that could help us? And I said, you know what? I said, give me a little time. Let me go on the golf course and I can figure this thing out. So playing golf with a guy and talked to this guy and had the guy come over and see the, uh, the high school weight room. And quickly, you can say cat in the hat. Dude, he, he had donated. <laughs> <laughs> he donated. I, I went and, and talked to him and Polaris, who's based here in Minnesota, yeah. reached out to him and helped him build a weight room. And we're going to be Going over there, myself, Polaris, the Vikings, and um, going over, we're going to open a new weight room. And, dude, they've got banners up from Polaris. they got banners up from the NFL Legends community. But I was just excited just to find one of my connections that could help him out because yeah. Polaris, like I, like I told Polaris, I said, you guys are always making roads where there aren't roads. And here's the connection. I think for you guys that speak volumes, but for what Polaris was wanting to do wasn't about just, they just wanted to do something good since it was in the state of Minnesota. And I was just so thrilled to be a part of it. Yeah. And you do that and you connect a bunch of us of NFL legends as one of the directors for the league and for the legends community. And it's been a blessing to me. I've been, I took advantage down to Tulane with the uh, trust Yes. Uh, which Good. is a, a phenomenal resource uh, that gives you a whole physical, a whole battery of tests that just preventative in, in nature that's so good. And uh, so I want to thank you for, for your service because that's really what it is, service to, yeah, it, to others. Point, you know, Morton, I think you said it best and that the, the connection, I tell guys that that locker room, that we don't have that locker room of 60 to 70 guys anymore. Our locker room now consists of over 20,000 former guys. Yeah. And if we, it's that brotherhood of telling guys that it's not black or white, it's just the brotherhood of, yeah. of us doing something that we love to do is playing the National Football League. Yeah. And now we have a bigger locker room so we can reach out and yeah. help each other. Yeah. Because that's, that's what life's all about, helping each other. Yeah, I love that. I love that, Johnny. Before I let you go, i got a couple of names, and we'll just play a little name game. And whatever comes to mind, when I say a name, throw it back to me. All right. Denny Green. Denny Green was uh, 
head coach of Minnesota Vikings. What made him so unique was whenever we were in the steam or the sauna, Dennis Green would come in the steam and the sauna and would be practice boxing. (laughs) (laughs) We all be sitting there going, Dennis Green. (laughs) So random. I I love it. (laughs) Chris Carter. CC. Chris Carter was probably the first guy who was doing the uh, the one-handed catch. Oh, yeah. And he was a guy who would be stretching early in the morning in the locker room. And uh, he was one of the guys in Minnesota who started Bible studies. And he also was probably one of the first guys who was like a player coach. He was not afraid to tell you, you got to pick it up. You need to do more. Randy Moss. Oh. Mr. Afro, country, talking country, but being a black dude, but at the same time, the guy who uh, we played the Dodge Cowboys on Thanksgiving Day, and all he kept talking about that whole week was, man, y'all just wait till I get to Dallas. Man, I'm going to tear them up. And just like any rookie, you know, you like, okay, yeah, sure. And what he did on Thanksgiving Day in Dallas, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Chris Dolman. Oh, uh, I miss him. Uh, one, of, one of the most unique things about Chris Dolman was, first of all, he always wore his, his polo shirt buttoned to the top. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Ah. Oh, good call, Johnny. That's a hey, great call, bro. He, he was having a shirt buttoned to the top, hey. and I watched him come to the locker room, like- and I'm like, yeah. And he, hey, I see him come in the locker room. Yeah. Hey, your shirt button to the top. Your shirt button to the top. Or he would have a briefcase. He came to work with a briefcase. And most of us would have backpacks. And I'm, I'm looking at him with the briefcase coming to work. And he'd just walk in there. And, and hey, he would put tape on his sock. I go, why do you put tape on your sock? I don't want him to fall down. And he goes, look at your sock. I said, dude, I don't care if my socks come down. I said, I don't care. He throw water in my jersey. I said, I don't care. I said, you're about clean it. I said, this over here, this is blue collar. Oh, this is, hey, this is Lumberjack. He's over there. And his game music would be like, he would listen to opera. He get in his car, and I'm like, oh, oh, Lord, help me. I can't take this. (laughs) You drive to the stadium? With him? Yeah, if I, if I got a ride with him, I would get there and get out of the car and go. And he goes, you coming in? I'm like, no, nah, go ahead. I'm going to wait. And I would just <laughs> sit out there. And like, oh. What did you listen to? I actually would listen to U2, love U2 music. Okay. So I had to have some U2 music. Uh, gotcha. All right. And uh, maybe The Doors. Oh. Uh, got to have some Jim Morrison. Yes, you do. You got to break on through. You got to break on break through. on through to but the other side, man. Other side, uh, yeah. The Lizard King, yeah. Oh, the Lizard King. Oh, yeah. man. Mm-hmm. All right, I got you, bro. You together? Tony Dungy, Brian. Tony Dungy. Oh, Tony. Tony Dungy. I learned so much from Tony. Tony was probably one of the most influential coaches for me, to where he could get his point across without saying a word. Hmm. so inspirational such a spiritual guy such a great not all just about coaching but as a person in general you know just because you play this way 
You don't have to be that way off the field. And I can remember, I got to tell you this, this great story about this player we had on the team, that this player we had that just, he was very, he was always wanting to be in the center of attention. And so he was always had this phrase after every play, he would go, ah, killer, ah, killer. So Tony put up on a, on a, a highlight reel of best plays. And you can hear this one guy in the back, ah, killer, ah, killer. Then Tony threw on a reel of bad plays. And so it's, it was this guy who was on there. And Tony said, ah, killer, ah, killer. And looked back at him. That's how he quieted that guy down. But wow. he, he said he was one of those guys, you don't have to say nothing to get your That's, point across. That is good, Johnny. Yeah. Gary Anderson. Gary, man, I felt so bad for Gary that game because everyone pointed, tried to point that it was Gary's fault. And I remember I said this and I said it all over. I go, it was not Gary's fault. I go, Gary had had made kicks, previous kicks that had gotten us out of out of bad situations. I said, this situation that we got in with Atlanta was about us. And with Gary, I remember going to Bible studies with Gary afterwards and listening to him just speak about different things he was going through. And uh, I think that's one, also maybe probably one of the reasons why he hasn't come back here to Minnesota. He hasn't? Because of, wow. yeah, we haven't seen him at events and stuff. And I, I think a lot of people have a lot of still anger towards him. That's crazy. I don't. Crazy. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I, even he belongs in the Hall of Fame. He should be in the Hall of Fame. Yes, too. And I and and I said, yeah, I said the same thing. It's just I'm like, it's not his fault. I go, you you got. I go, we're a team, and as a team, don't look at it that way. And I go, he missed one field goal the whole year, one. And I said, you trying to put him on for one bad play? And I go, what about our bad play? And so I feel so bad for him. You know, and I, I wish him all the best. I wish he would come back to Minnesota. Well, maybe if he listens to Great Dane Nation, he will. And uh, He should. He should, man. Hey, Johnny, it's been fun, man. Not bad for, for a country boy from Texas. Ooh, sitting sitting right cool. there in a suburb in Minneapolis, director of the Legends community, who's made a huge impact on the league, not only on the field, brother, but off the field. And you're, you're – uh, just the way you are, you know, it's inspiring and motivating. And it's most of all, it's fun. It's quality just being yes, with is. you and the way you connect people and the way you help people off the field. Very inspiring. I learned a lot from you, man. Thank you, dude. And I, I'll say this about you. You are my brother from another mother. <laughs> that, yes, that, that we can confirm. Yes, sir, dude. I love you, man. And I'll, I'll see you soon, I hope. Oh, yeah. Love you, too. Take care. That was a great conversation with John, and I'll have more on him in my Game Winner segment at the end of the podcast. But Freeze Pops, before we get to your conversation with Kevin Rogers, tell our listeners where they can find us on social media. You got to follow us on Twitter, at Great Dane Nation. 
You got to follow us on Instagram at Great Dane Nation VI. And remember, make sure you check out the video version of our interview with Johnny Randall on the Vegas Insider YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Vegas Insider TV. You can go back and check out our previous interviews with Cam Jordan, Emmett Smith, Troy Aikman, and many more. That's youtube.com slash Vegas Insider TV. Now let's get to my conversation with Kevin Rogers from Vegas Insider. VegasInsider.com is the global leader for sports gaming information, and it's your authority for the newest and best sports gambling podcasts. Every week, we're joined by one of our Vegas Insider experts to make us a little smarter. And this week, we welcome back Vegas Insider expert and the host of the Bet and Collect podcast, Kevin Rogers. Kevin, what's going on? Tom, good to talk to you again. Make sure you check out the latest from Kevin on VegasInsider.com. He's got podcasts. He's got picks. The man does it all. And you got to follow him on Twitter at VI Rogers. And Kevin Morton and I talked about this earlier in the pod. Big news of the week in the football world. J.J. Watt signs with the Cardinals. Two years, 31 million, 23 guaranteed. This signing dropped Arizona to plus 550 to win the NFC West. They had previously been sitting at plus 700. They still have the fourth longest odds to win one of football's toughest divisions. As we sit here on March 3rd, how do you see the NFC West shaking out? Well, number one, we got to make sure Russell Wilson stays in Seattle. Because if he does, then that changes the conversation if he gets traded elsewhere with all of the discussion that he is not happy there, but he is happy, but he's not happy. Like, why is someone saying you're not happy, but you are happy? So we have to see how he's obviously the most important player right now in that division uh, moving forward. So let's see what happens with him. As far as this pertains with the Arizona Cardinals, that before J.J. Watt signed with the Cardinals, they were the fourth best team in the NFC West which is no shame because it's the best division probably in football, that from top to bottom, if your worst team is the Arizona Cardinals with the number one pick and Kyler Murray as your quarterback and DeAndre Hopkins, one of the best receivers, if not the best receiver in the league on your team, that's not that bad. Number one, we assume that Matthew Stafford going to the Rams is going to help their offense. I'm not saying yes or no. We're just assuming that because – they think he's an upgrade from Jared Goff, which he probably is. But now we'll see what Stafford can do in a better situation as opposed to Detroit. San Francisco, they had a bunch of injuries last year. Garoppolo was hurt. Garoppolo is not Tom Brady, but Garoppolo is also better than Nick Mullins and C.J. Beathard and whoever else they throw out there. And Bosa was hurt, and, and they just had a lot of – Kittle was hurt for a little bit. They had a lot of issues last year, uh, the 49ers. And Seattle – is still a, a playoff team. But again, Russell Wilson, him not there, is going to make it a huge deal. So assuming Russell Wilson stays with the Seahawks, I can't think J.J. Watt changes Arizona's outlook that much. He's going to make them better. Like he's obviously you know a standout defensive end. But I just don't see in that division how a guy like that is that much of a difference maker. I felt differently like when DeAndre Hopkins went there. He said, okay, now Kyler Murray has a big target to throw to where I don't really know what J.J. Watt's going to do defensively to make Arizona a team that can win the NFC West. 
Let's switch over to basketball here. The NBA All-Star break is upon us. The Jazz have surprised everyone as they have been dominating everyone out there in the Western Conference. The Nets are scaring the crap out of everybody with their big three, Harden, Durant, and Kyrie. And those three have barely even played together all season. When you look at the futures bets right now in the NBA, who do you think is the safest bet to win the title? And who do you think provides the best value as we sit here today? Well, I think in the Eastern Conference, assuming whenever Kevin Durant comes back for the Nets, that Brooklyn's got to be the team to beat. Just because Milwaukee has had so many ups and downs this year, and I'm just not sure if I could trust them to beat Brooklyn four times in a series. And also, Philadelphia, for as great as Joel Embiid has been, and when Embiid and Ben Simmons play, the Sixers are nearly unbeatable. I have not seen it yet in the playoffs and what they can do as far as being successful. So, I mean, again, Brooklyn, it's not fair because they haven't had these guys all play together. So you can't say you can't say necessarily that Brooklyn is not tested because they will be. It's just about them getting together. So Brooklyn, I think, in the Eastern Conference and then in the West, you got to get Anthony Davis back for the Lakers because there's no way LeBron can win it by himself. You you just can't do that. He has to have Anthony Davis. You see the two of them and Dennis Schroeder's healthy. It's a pretty good team. The Clippers are like the wild card because they are a team that Kawhi and Paul George, you see have two superstars, but somehow things fell apart in the playoffs last year. And it is tough with the bubble to really judge that and say, well, the bubble, you know, everyone was kind of, you know, you were stuck in Orlando for months on end. The Lakers were still the best team. They deserve to be the champions. But the Clippers, they fell apart in the playoffs against the Nuggets. You know, if they played home games instead of on, you know, in a sense, neutral site games, would they have done better? Maybe. But when you talk about the Utah Jazz, Tom, that they remind us of the Atlanta Hawks from a few years ago that had the four all-stars that won 20-something out of 20-something, whatever it was. They won 58, 60 games. They ran into the Cavs in the playoffs with LeBron and lost. I'm just afraid that the Jazz... I just don't know how much confidence I have in them winning a seven-game series against either one of those teams or both of those teams because chances are if you're Utah, you're going to face at least one of them, if not both of them, in the final two rounds of the Western Conference playoffs. And Utah, again, did they catch fire too early? That's always a tough thing to to gauge, but I I just am not ready to – think that the Jazz are an NBA Finals type team. They're a team that can go far in the playoffs, but I just don't know if they'll have enough to win four games against the Lakers or Clippers, or if it's both them, eight games against those two teams, assuming all these guys, LeBron, Kawhi, Paul George, Anthony Davis are all healthy. So I know it sounds chalky, but the NBA is a chalky league that the Nets have got to be the team that's going to go to the finals from the East. And then out of the West, it's got to be either the Lakers or Clippers. I love that Jazz Hawks comparison. I don't know that I had heard that yet. That's a really good call. I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with that. I'm gonna steal that when I'm talking with my buddies. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us again. And before I let you go, tell everyone what you're working on and where they can find it. Well, we have the Bet and Collect podcast twice a week. You could find that on our podcast page on VegasInsider.com. Also, we started a few weeks ago now. We've been rolling with that, the Daily Insider, which is our live stream on YouTube, on our YouTube channel of Vegas Insider from Monday through Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can check that out. It's about a half hour or so every afternoon looking back at the night before and looking ahead to the uh, current night of action. So check that out, the Daily Insider, on our YouTube channel at Vegas Insider.
And remember to check out that Vegas Insider YouTube channel every day of the week for all of Morton's interviews, all the great stuff that Kevin and the team at Vegas Insider are putting out there. Handicappers talking about NBA college hoops and much more. Go to youtube.com slash Vegas Insider TV. That's youtube.com slash Vegas Insider TV. Kevin, thanks for the time today. We'll talk soon. All right, Tom, you got it. Thank you. And now Morton Anderson's game winner. Every breath you take, every move you make, every bond you break, every step you take, I'll be watching you. Staying the front man of the police sang those words back in 1983. I know that he didn't have John Randall in mind when he stood on stage in front of thousands singing those lyrics, but he could have, and it would have been fitting and appropriate. You see, John Randall made it his business to know yours. He watched you, studied you, and exploited your weakness. It was part of his workmanlike DNA to deep dive into his opponent's subconscious mind and sow doubt, confusion, and mayhem. He made it an art form to trash talk, and it was beautiful to witness. The foundation on which he built his mental manipulation game was based on hard work detailed preparation, and discipline. Every aspect of his being had purpose and direction, and his pure joy of playing and improving his skill set was at the center of it all. He acquired work ethics early on by necessity. John Randall is a country boy from Texas who grew up poor and hungry. There was no time or place to feel sorry for yourself. You had to work and work he did. By all accounts, he forged ahead relentlessly, even when he was told that he was too small and too light to play with the big boys. John would force his will upon the doubters and critics who had discounted the most important part of his being, his heart. For a man whose road to success was burdensome and full of potholes, John exhibits an amazing attitude of gratitude. He affects lives daily through his mentorships, friendships, and acts of giving. I hear John say these words the most. How can I help you? Are you okay? What do you need? No pure example of unselfish, unbiased, and unabashed charity can be found than what John Randall delivers daily to everyone he comes in contact with. He doesn't see color. He sees humans, and reacts with purpose to their needs, just like he did when he roamed inside the minds of those unfortunate opponents who lined up across from him. We'll see you next time. Great Dane Nation is presented by VegasInsider.com the global leader in sports gaming information, and your authority for the newest and best sports gambling podcasts. A big thanks to John Randall for joining us this week, and thanks to Kevin Rogers and the team at Vegas Insider. Remember to check out the Vegas Insider YouTube channel for all of Morton's interviews from Great Dane Nation, as well as amazing content from our handicappers talking NBA, college hoops, and much more. Go to youtube.com slash Vegas Insider TV. 
Great Dane Nation is available on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review today.